Welcome to another edition of the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. And here we are, the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. We've got um, various items that we want to share with you, including an interview with Anna Marie Denberg. And we're going to be talking with her about the Board of Supervisors meeting just yesterday where they passed a resolution supporting science-based management of Jackson Demonstration State Forest. What do you got for us, Chad? Well, I'm kind of excited that we are going to be speaking with Colin Gillespie of Pole Craft Solutions, an alternative building group out of Laytonville. And this is in response to a number of people have said, if you are not wanting us to be cutting wood, then what are we going to be building houses out of? Well, Colin Gillespie makes some beautiful houses, and we have an extended interview with him. Looking forward to that. After that, we'll be talking to Vince Taylor of the original campaign to restore Jackson State Forest. Uh, he has a plan for the Mendocino Woodlands. We want to know more about it. Well, thanks, Paul. Yeah, you bet. Uh, it was exciting to see Vince. He was up this weekend celebrating his 85th birthday and getting together with various folks, other friends and activists, and we were taking a hike up near the woodlands. And it was great to see him so hale and hearty. <laughs> Definitely. Go to hills and it's waiting for me there. And that was Fire on the Mountain by a group called Iron Horse. Okay, we are here talking to Anna Marie Stenberg. She has lived in Mendocino County on the coast for 40 years and is a well-known, dedicated activist. Anna Marie, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little Thank bit you. about your history as an activist? Well, I first got involved in activism on the coast. I was running a daycare center. I had a daycare center with 43 families in them, a number of mill workers from the Georgia Pacific Mill and, and lockers, among other, other. And the PCB spill happened, and the main person that it impacted, he had his child at my daycare. And uh, it's a long story, but basically I worked with them with the workers for at least three years, took it all, got OSHA, federal OSHA to find GP, the, 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 and all kinds of things happened. But basically I took it all the way to the Federal OSHA Review Commission in Washington, D.C. and did a lot of different things on that issue. And that's what basically got me into forestry. I, I've done other organizing in the community uh, around rights, uh, civil rights and community rights and homeless issues and all kinds of stuff. But forestry has been a, the, a big thing, big part of it. I was the key organizer for Redwood Summer on the coast. We had that huge rally and a lot of other things happening. So anyway, that's me. <laughs> and Anna Marie, you had mentioned earlier, you have a family history. My children's great-grandfather, Frank Stenberg came from Sweden as a teenager and ended up here in Mendocino County. And he he logged. He was a he was a logger staying in a pup tent out in the woods in Glen Blair. Mm -hmm. um, and he was one of the original loggers of the giant redwoods here. Amazing. Mm -hmm. He was a great man. I really loved him. I, I I I I I used to tease my husband. It's the reason why I married him is because I fell in love with his grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been very involved lately in the struggle to save Jackson Demonstration State Forest. That's how I've been meeting you. And I wonder what, what got you into that? What was the motivation? Well, Chad knows 
knows pretty well what happened because I had just, you know, it had, it was last April and I had heard that there was a tree set and it was a young, a, a high school student in, in Jackson State Forest. And that's all I really knew. And I had been, I was recovering. I had major emergency double bypass and valve replacement. It was about a year and a couple months before that. But I said, I really need to go see what's going on there. So I wasn't in great health and hadn't been doing much of anything besides trying to heal. And I, I went to see the tree set and Chad and Bill Lemos and a couple other people were there. And I, I talked to Greasy Pete a little bit. And then when, when Chad came, I asked what was going on. And he told me briefly. And then uh, I said, well, what else is going to happen to save these trees? I mean, I, I was surrounded by these big, beautiful trees with blue marks all over them, you know. And he said, well, there's really not much we can do because we, we, do, we don't have a lawsuit. And the, these trees will probably be sacrificed, but the, the, it'll it'll get the community really involved. And there's a lot of other THPs that are just as bad coming down the pike. So <laughs> I said, well, that can't happen. It was a Saturday. And I asked it how, how the trail stewards felt about direct action. And he said, well, we can't support it. I mean, we can't be a part of it, but uh, I don't have anything against it. So I put the call out to the community. And by that was Saturday. And by Monday morning at 4.30, there were 43 people blockading the road to Casper 500. Four yes. of them, only four had ever done forestry action before. This was like I talked about at the supervisors today. This was the community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were, there's a guy in a wheelchair that I'd never met before that was willing to be arrested. Mm-hmm. It was cold. It was 4.30 in the morning. It was dark. And there's a picture of us standing across the roads, arm length, waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the start of it. And you can see that amazing photo on the Mendocino Trail Stewards Instagram feed for today. Since then, you know, I'm an organizer, but, you know, I've done a lot of direct action in Jackson State, but it certainly wasn't just me. There are lots of people doing it. We've blockaded a lot of roads. We we stopped the chainsaws. We did our own um, moratorium, people's moratorium. And I think that the main thing that's this is so different than any of the other ones I did, because this is the community there are young people as young as six years old little 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 toy is well she was five when she first got involved and 15 you know sarah and ravel and walker all these young kids and then there's me in my 70s and other people in their 70s and all the mix in between and people with second homes by jackson state forest and people and, and 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 people that live in their cars all doing direct action, willing to put their bodies on the line to save the people's force. And that's really the big difference in this movement than any other movement that in Mendocino County that I've been involved in. It's a community effort. Yeah, I've got to say something that it's been really amazing for me to see how it went from six mountain bikers a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Just it, it boomed and blossomed and you know, when you asked me and Naomi Wagner asked me, so what do you think about direct action? Are you for or against it? And I said, well, you know, I think you should go for it. And I'm not, you don't need my permission. I think it's great. I just can't publicly support it right off the bat. And things have changed now. But 
I went up. <laughs> yeah, you've been out there with us. <laughs> yeah, I went up to the tree set. Yeah. And after Greasy Pete was up there, and I was just so inspired, and it just it opened my my heart really. And then I talked to Bill Heil. He came out there with you, I think, the second time you went out, and he and Linda were saying nothing's ever happened like this because most tree sits are not so easy to get to, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, accessible and on public property, that there were classes of students showing up there and there were tourists showing up there. And one day I I walked away and I was about a quarter mile away and some guy from the city is like, whoa, is the tree sit protest here? People are just Mm -hmm. coming from everywhere. Yep, that's absolutely true. It really is a community thing. I mean, direct action uh, was supported by the community. And direct action in my Years and years of doing this, direct, uh, the, the saying is, and it's really true from my vantage point, direct action gets the goods, but it can't get it without the community behind it. Mm-hmm. Can you give us and, an update on what is going on in the forest right now? Well, we're doing recon at least three or four times a week in the THPs that are, haven't been, there's nothing happening in, Red Tail and Casper 500. Uh, we have a tree sit, another tree sit, nice. uh, protecting the Gemini tree in Casper 500. Um, we have, you know, we, we we do these recons and we keep track of what's going on. Uh, every time there's an alarm, it's either through uh, the recon or somebody in the community says, I saw such and such, we're out there <laughs> in force. Mm-hmm. We put the alert out and the people come out. The last time um, there were 26 people within an hour out there in Casper 500 to protect those trees. And I let the supervisors know that today, that that's what's going on. It's not, it's not hippie activists. It's the community, the community, this is their force. It's the people's force and they understand it. And we have a climate crisis and they understand that we can't do anything that's going on in Glasgow, but we can do something in the people's force. We can keep those big trees standing. We have to keep them standing Yes, for the future, for our children and our children's children. Mm -hmm. Paul. Yeah. Oh, I was just wanting to uh, bring up the board of supervisors meeting that just happened and the resolution that was apparently passed unanimously. I just wanted to get your take on, on that. That's one of the reasons, Paul, that I have a huge smile on my face. And you hear the happiness in my voice. Yeah. This is, this is really, I mean, seriously, 30 years of forestry activism in Mendocino County. We've gone to the supervisors, I don't know how many times, with resolutions, with proposed bills, with here, try this, do this, please. We've gotten one or two votes. We got a unanimous vote today. Yes, five That's to amazing. zero. Five zero. And, and what, what, what this is about, this resolution, just asks for another review from the state on what's going on in, in Jackson State Forest. What's the scientific basis? Is the scientific basis for what they're doing sound? That's what the resolution asked. And <laughs> it was so funny because they, they kind of stacked, I don't know who did it. But they kind of stacked the deck and almost all the people that first spoke were either timber people or Cal Fire people at the Board of Supervisors. Did you hear that, Paul? 
Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. were front loaded. Yeah, they they were front loaded. Well, with and, the exception of Priscilla Hunter, though, who yes, Priscilla Hunter, that was really good of Ted to do that. We just David, my partner, who's Native American, brought that to Ted's attention that Priscilla needed to be speaking first. And not only did Ted do that, he also, I mean, we had a board of supervisors at the board of supervisors. One of the supervisors, Ted said, when he was introducing Priscilla, this is unceded Pomo land. Nice. Absolutely. And he said she absolutely should go first. Yes. And that's what happened. And then we had a bunch of timber industry or Cal Fire people. And what they what they did is they uh, they shot themselves in the foot. They were so resistant. We're doing everything right. We don't need any oversight. Why are you even questioning us? That was their main thing. <laughs> if you don't want to be, you don't want anybody looking over what you're doing. You must be be not very proud of what you're doing. If they were proud of what they were doing. Wouldn't they want somebody to look over it and say, oh, they're doing a great job? No, they didn't. And they really were adamant about it. They were so insulted. Last night, uh, an email came in. They they got hundreds to possibly over a thousand comments, written comments mm-hmm. submitted, although I haven't seen nearly all of them um, cataloged onto the website. But mm-hmm. one came from a local who's been around for 10 years named Evan Mills and he is actually a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize as a member of the International Panel on Climate Change. And mm-hmm. his letter was just basically letting them know that their science needs to be looked at. And mm-hmm. I, I brought that letter to the attention of Ted and said, you, you really need to read that with the rest of the supervisors because mm-hmm. th- this guy is an internationally known scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the Cal Fire people said, um, Webb, uh, Lynn Webb, she Mm -hmm. said, um, you need to look at when people are quoting scientific studies and science, you need to check their background. (laughs) In other words, we should listen to Cal Fire science, but we shouldn't listen to climate scientists outside of Cal Fire. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was unanimous and it's really exciting that it happened. And uh, I'll tell you who really took it over the finish line is the, the, the youth. Three of them spoke. And they had the most facts. They had the most passion. Yeah. And they had the most right to be heard. Yes. Because it is their future. It is their future. It, you know, I'm 74. I'm going to be dead in, you know, <laughs> in not very long. But they have, it's, their future and their children's future that we're fighting for. Yeah. So what do you see as the next step? Well, Priscilla said it and almost all everyone that spoke that spoke in favor of the resolution said it today. We need a moratorium. Yes. Before there's any studies done, what are you going to study? As the trees are coming down, you're going to study it? You're going to study how the trees are coming down? What do you, what? I mean, the people will keep doing the recon. We'll to, to keep doing the direct action, <laughs> but we we've done the people's moratorium. We need a moratorium, and then the studies can go forward. And once the studies are done, then people sit at the table. All the uh, all the uh, all the um, all the people involved 
all, all different, all the different parties, all the stakeholders, they sit at the table and they work it out. Mm -hmm. I don't have a solution. I have ideas, but the community, again, the whole community, including the timber community, I see, you know, they were talking about jobs. Look, you know what that force looks like. You know what kind of jobs need to be done out there. Yeah. And that the, the people that work in the forest are best qualified to do it. They don't have to lose jobs. They just change their jobs to mending the forest, to, to doing restoration, to taking care of all those slash piles, to putting those roads to bed. Those, that's the kind of work that needs to be done out there. Yeah, and That's it's not, not like the, the fallers are going to be out of work. If no. anybody has been sitting around Fort Bragg watching Highway 1, there have been more yeah. logging trucks going by this year than I have seen in 20, 25 yeah. years. And they're loaded with large trees. And it's it's really sad. But I think one of the things that people, the larger North Pacific Northwest timber industry is worried about is that this is a forest with outsized importance because it is a demonstration forest. And right. if we are demonstrating that the forest is worth more standing and it definitely is worth more standing That's that, right. um, that can trickle down and ripple out and hopefully change things elsewhere. Yeah. So this is yeah. a big yeah. step, even though a the board of supervisors step. have no real power to affect Cal fire. No. And Cal Fire no. admitted it at the JAG meeting. You were standing in front of him, and you were saying, yeah. you know, what about Measure V? And Cal Fire said, yeah. well, <laughs> as a state agency. We don't have we... to listen to the county. No. We don't have to listen to them. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was another time they put their foot in their mouth. <laughs> yeah, on video. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the most important thing that, that could happen is we need public pressure on our elected officials. Yeah. to get a moratorium. We need that. Yeah, and and it, and I think that this this success today really does show that that this is how democracy is supposed to work. And, you know, that's one of the things I really love about Mendocino County is that we really can I guess because we're small enough in terms of a uh, uh, population. There's what 90,000 or somewhere around there. Yeah, and we're, we're the we're the fifth largest county in terms of geographic area, but we're, we're very small. And, you know, we see our supervisors at the grocery store. Yeah. You know, yeah. there are there, you know, Ted was our volunteer fire person. You know, I mean, we're, we're all community. We see, you know, I, I took care of logging families. You know, I, I had them on my side on Redwood Summer, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're a community and that's this, what happened today with the supervisors was a community action. The community rose up. Ted said one thing that was really amazing. He said, people, the people of Mendocino County are more concerned about the process, that everybody gets heard, that it's fair, that it's democratic. Mm -hmm. We had a democratic action today. People spoke Absolutely. up, and, and the politicians listened. Well, we yeah. need to wrap this up, and we would love to hear more from you in the future, but thanks for, for talking yeah. with us. And yeah. as I normally do, I would like to ask you for a song. A song? <laughs> no. You don't I have can't. to sing a song, but can, <laughs> can you recommend a song that you would love to hear? Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on.
Thanks so much, okay. Henri. All right. Thank you, guys. And again, Chad, look yeah. what you started. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Paul. All right. All right. We'll see yeah, you soon. You guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Keep On Keeping On by Curtis Mayfield, 1972. And you are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZUX and Z, Public Broadcasting, Mendocino County, with Chad Swimmer and Paul Schulman. I am speaking with Colin Gillespie, a professional natural builder for over 20 years. He is the co-founder of Polecraft Solutions, LLC, a worker-owned collective based in Laytonville, Mendocino County, California. He is also a leading member of the Forest Reciprocity Group, an initiative of the nonprofit Cloud Forest Institute. He has been the instructor of numerous classes and workshops in the field of natural building. We're going to listen to a little bit more of this song that was recommended to us by Colin. Ben Harper, fight for your mind. Colin, how are you doing? Doing quite well. Good Thank, morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining me here. So I am curious, were you a builder before you got into natural building? I was. I, I had done uh i'd worked under a couple of contractors just as a laborer and learned uh, a lot of more uh mainstream stud frame construction built some decks and helped out on some remodels but i really didn't dive in deep until i took uh, a cob building workshop at hartwood institute about 20 20 plus years ago 22 years ago i want to say Nice. What made you want to take that? Um, I guess uh, it was something I had heard of, and it was uh, building with Cobb, um, but I didn't know much about it. It intrigued me, but it seemed a little bit uh, mystical, and uh, I was really excited to know there was a, a workshop not far from where I was living at the time, and it was it uh, more than fulfilled my expectations. It really kind of sent me down a, uh, an exciting path of discovering many ways to build. I'm actually really unaware of what is Cobb. Can you talk to us about what a Cobb house is? Yeah, Cobb is a term that comes from England and in uh, particularly the Devon region of England. Cobb was used to build a lot of houses that are now six, seven, eight hundred years old and still operating just wonderfully. And it's basically a combination of clay earth, sometimes added aggregate, sand, possibly gravel, and straw as a fiber content. And it's all mixed together, similar to an uh, adobe, uh, similar to a lot of different building systems that are around the world have used similar ingredients. It's assembled into the walls of a house. Usually they say, give it a good hat and good boots, meaning 
a good foundation and a nice roof that has some overhang and it basically lasts forever. Wow. And it's fine for our climate? It does wonderfully in our climate as far as its stability, the structural integrity is is really performed well on numerous examples in our area. I, I would say that uh, one drawback to Cobb is it isn't a great insulator. It has a high thermal mass value, so it tends to retain heat that it's exposed to, but it doesn't prevent the passage of heat really well. So in our climate, where I'm using Cobb is typically in uh, on the south wall of a house or sometimes interior walls or around hearths, places that are uh, sort of like a good battery for heat retention. Mm-hmm. So I lived a long time ago in an adobe house in Santa Fe, and it was extremely efficient. It was pretty warm in the winter and pretty cool in the mm-hmm. summer. It seemed like it took a lot less energy to heat and cool than the house I live in now, which unfortunately is wood. What is How does Cobb fit into this? Yeah, so uh, the Southwest is a classic area for adobe structures. And part of that, the reason they perform so well in that climate is because there's a lot of winter sun that uh, will continue to warm the adobe with but it's it's not the best insulator i guess is is the point to be taken here is um it it as long as you have a regular input of heat that's going into that during the winter months then it will sort of retain it through the night retain that heat through the, the cold nights and and then by the next day, if you're getting more solar input, then it will be able to recharge that heat on a regular basis. Each day it warms up and it holds the heat through the night. The, the, it doesn't perform quite as well when we have long stretches without solar radiation coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it's cloudy for extended periods, then you end up having to if you want to maintain a a comfortable temperature indoors you you would have to have some sort of heat input either from a wood stove or gas or some other heat source yes so what do you build the other walls out of i've come to really appreciate straw bale walls as a fantastic insulator really almost unparalleled we cover those with well typically we would put a clay plaster over those straw bale walls and that really also acts as a thermal battery as a thermal mass that is effectively holding heat through the cold spells and it has the insulation factor from the straw bale which prevents that heat from escaping. Yes, I was coming out of the Trinity Alps a number of years ago, and I stopped at the coffee shop, the Straw House, which is a large straw bale building, and it was 105 degrees outside, and it was quite tolerable inside. Why would you build a house out of three walls or a number of walls out of straw bale and one wall out of cob? Well, there's a lot of, you know, every building system I really see has 
pros and cons. It has things that does well and some other aspects that, that might be viewed as drawbacks. For Cobb, what we gain, one of the, the great benefits of Cobb is its sculptability. So it allows us to have, say, arched windows, niches. We can build benches out of it. It has a certain amount of parameters and you want to maintain a certain thickness in its girth. It's really, uh, it offers a huge amount of uh, imagination to come into building. And so creative sculpture really is, uh, has a lot of potential with Cobb. Um, It also has the benefit of holding thermal input. So if you're able to use that in conjunction with a good insulator, such as straw bale, then the the two can really kind of enhance each other's performance. The insulation allows that heat that is absorbed in the cob or adobe or similar, it allows that heat to be retained for longer periods. It uh, prevents uh, temperature swings outdoors from reaching the interior. So I've heard that cob houses that were in Redwood Valley survived the fire quite well a few years ago. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I would say uh, the cob structure that was in that fire I know of survived and uh, a straw bale structure that I know of as well survived that fire. That that particular straw bale, it was done uh, designed by an architect Architect uh, Arkentilt is the, the name of their company. And they are actually, after that fire, have offered those plans up to the public for free with an agreement with the, the homeowner because he felt that it basically saved his life and his dog. They really wanted to make this an option for people. Wow, did they ride out the fire inside the house? They did. They actually were trying to leave in a vehicle, but they found that the driveway was blocked by a wall of flame and they turned around and took refuge in the house and they survived just fine. There was actually a stack of firewood up against the house that was totally incinerated and it, it, it managed to, it fired the clay that was the plaster of the house and sort of turned it a deep red, but it uh, was completely protected. Wow. How do people find those plans? Um, they can look at Arkentilt. I'm sure you can find them on the web. Yes, I'm looking at that right now online. It is A-R-K-I-N-T-I-L-T dot com, Arkentilt dot com. And if you email them, info at Arkentilt dot com, they have made eight sets of plans available to people who would like to build a fireproof straw bale house. People are very concerned about carbon footprints of building materials and also sourcing of building materials. Where do you, when you are building a co-op straw bale house, where do you get your materials? A lot of the, the homes that we would build are typically kind of a hybrid of different materials. Uh, so typically there is a, a superstructure timber frame that we assemble 
and those we really prefer to use small diameter round poles that are harvested from overly dense dug fir stands and uh, that thereby we're, we're really doing some fire mitigation in the forest hopefully uh, creating a more stable ecosystem so that when uh, wildfires do come through that they're not turning into canopy fires and able to uh, stay down low and so that superstructure timber frame is often surrounded by straw bales and or some cob and then that's those straw bales are plastered in clay plaster sometimes a lime plaster sometimes both we often put a, a clay base coat and a finish lime plaster rendering and so those materials come from the the clay usually comes from right on site and it often comes right out of the the foundation trenches most of the soils around here are significantly high in clay to where uh, they work fantastic as uh, the base for a plaster we typically add some sand and some straw the a loose straw or some other fiber so the sand we usually get from a local quarry the straw bales are typically coming from the Central Valley, it's a byproduct of the rice industry. We, we prefer to use rice straw. It, it's high in silica. It resists breakdown more than others. It uh, has a high tensile strength and holds up pretty well to abuse. I have a number of questions that get into the feasibility of building one of these things. And I know that different er, different groups around here offer workshops, but if a person wanted to pay somebody to build a house like this, how does it compare in price to, say, a wood house? Um, it's it's very competitive. I mean, it's our houses. I you know I I think that the standard contractor is going to be charging these days some give or take three hundred dollars a square foot. And our structures, I feel like, have typically been closer to $200 a square foot. And that's for a fully finished structure. We also do a lot of barns, carports, gazebos, freestanding timber frame structures. And, and those are much cheaper to build. We're not surrounding them with exterior walls and having that added construction. Mm-hmm. I first came, became aware of you through Instagram. Check out at Polecrafts to see a lot of what Colin's been up to. A number of quite beautiful houses that you'd been working on. I am wondering, though, about poles, because that's a whole other area that you just started talking about. Are dug fir poles the best to use? Does it really matter? It is, uh, it's important to pay attention to the species. You know, softwoods cure a lot faster and uh, if you're going to use another hardwood species you're going to be looking at a much different curing process probably putting it into a kiln we are also just encountering that there's a lot of terrain around here that are filled with young douglas fir that came up in the wake of clear cutting as 
the the light was sort of blanketing the forest floor. There's a regeneration of Douglas firs that have come in very thick and are and are now somewhere between 50 and 70 years later. Now they're very dense stands that typically are starting to die. Sometimes we're removing dead trees as well as thinning out uh, the smaller impacted trees so that the few that are a little larger are able to be released and grow into mature trees. And that's kind of the goal. And that's partly how we came into this style of building is really just encountering so many forest lands, so many properties that we uh, started working with were just filled with uh, thickets of dug fir in an unhealthy state. And it happens to be that these Douglas firs that are competing with each other in that tight proximity are also experiencing a slowing of growth as they mature. And they're sort of starved for light and starved for uh, water. And so they're, the growth rings tend to get tighter and tighter on the outside of those trees. And it makes for a really strong piece of wood. And it's uh, usually very few knots. And the ones that are there are small and don't uh, hinder the structural integrity of the piece. Interesting. Are redwood poles equally valuable? So redwood is not, it doesn't have as high a tensile strength as Douglas fir. And, and so, you know, Douglas fir is kind of the industry standard for milled lumber as well. And it's not by accident. It, it does have traits that make it really desirable for building. It has high tensile strength and a high elasticity and a decent compressive strength. Redwood doesn't quite have as good a mark on any of those. So it's what it does have is rot resistance, but it's particularly in the heartwood of redwood that we see that kind of resistance to degradation. And a lot of times young poles, uh, a good portion of that wood is sapwood. So we found less less uses for small diameter uh, redwood poles. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't uses to be had. And anywhere you're going to maybe be uh, exposed to weather, we have used redwood poles when we aren't covering it with a roof. And we're looking for poles that have minimal uh, sapwood and are mostly hardwood. What is your main choice for roofing? We like to put metal roofing on most of our structures because it it really does protect that valuable structure pretty well. It it, it resists fire. We like to put a, um, a significant pitch on those roofs so that embers that might land on that roof are able to slide off. And it really it kind of is like uh, having a, a good insurance after we've put the investment into creating a really nice structure it seems like it's about the best way to protect it that we've encountered you know one thing that we, i think we aspire to maybe using clay tiles eventually we haven't really encountered a project that's given us that opportunity but i think that there is a lot of potential there mm -hmm. 
What is the time frame? Say if somebody decided in the winter that they had a place and they wanted to build a small house, maybe a 500 square foot house. Is that something that could be done over the space of one summer? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it can happen pretty quick. Uh, the design is, is critical. Then having a simple design means it's going to cost less and it's going to be quicker to assemble. There's also the consideration of, of the timing for peeling the poles. This is something we do that it preserves the, the pole a lot better and it creates a more elegant kind of smooth finish when we peel the bark off the poles. We like to do that in the early part of the spring. It's really easy to peel when the sap is just beginning to flow in the springtime and the trees haven't really swelled with water much yet. So that, that combination is really an ideal window to prepare poles from the woods. So, so considering that timeline in a build is, is something that's fairly critical. We like to uh, amass a good, a good stockpile of poles every spring for the various projects that we come up with. And, and sometimes we are just assisting other landowners in harvesting their own poles for their own projects. And so we really like to target that early window in spring. And that, a little, that depends a little bit on elevation and regional climate factors. Um, usually around here, we find that uh, February, March, April is kind of the window when the sap starts flowing in the trees. And it makes the, the peeling process of the poles a lot more approachable. Yes, I did that recently for some, for a large frame for a chicken yard, and it was really tough. But we were dealing with poles that were harvested in August. Yeah, yeah, the sap is dried up at that point, and the bark really tends to stick to the wood. When, and, and just having sat around for a while, too, as it dries up, that bark tends to adhere more to the wood. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Forest Reciprocity Group? Sure. This is uh, a group that was born out of um, an initiative of Cloud Forest Institute. Uh, they are a nonprofit that is based in Mendocino County that has worked on uh, restoring ecology of tropical forest lands, and they were looking to address more local forest issues. Jenny Bernstead is the director of that nonprofit, and she approached uh, our company and asked if we would be interested in working on sort of a generally promoting sustainable use of forest land that could be improving the health of the ecologies of the forest land while recognizing that these forests have a lot to offer human civilization and if the and so we sort of started uh, a number of meetings. This was probably three years ago uh, to just figure out how we might 
it advance uh, a narrative of working in reciprocity with these forest lands that seem to benefit from human stewardship. And at the same time, humans were able to benefit from the things the forest offers. Thank you. That's actually pretty profound at base. Well, we are almost out of time. If you could give us some resources, if a person wanted to do something of their own, or who would they contact if they wanted to get a structure of this sort built? Well, I mean, I, I'll share uh, our website, and I can think of a couple other contacts that would be uh, worthwhile to look at. Um, we are Polecraft Solutions, www.polecraftsolutions.com. And we have a contact there for myself and founding partner, Eric Lasotovich. Um, and you can reach us through that website. I really have a lot to uh, say about Emerald Earth. is an intentional community in, near Boonville that's done a lot of classes and trainings over the years. I've, I've been a part of many of their trainings and many years ago, and, and they are continuing to offer trainings, classes, and possibly tours. They have a lot of structures that are built from the materials we've been discussing, so they have a lot of on-site encounters. If people want to see what these structures are like, look for Emerald Earth in Mendocino County on the web. There'll be some contacts there. Yes, and that is E-M-E-R-A-L-D-E-A-R-T-H dot O-R-G, Emerald Earth. Well, I have to say, I've been looking at your website. Colin's house, your house, is beautiful. It is really just quite an attractive place to live. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I certainly borrowed a lot of ideas from pioneers in the field who I should give credit to, uh, the Cobb Cottage Company, Michael G. Smith, uh, what, and I wanted to uh, just put out there too that he is another great contact. He is out in Cape Hay Valley, yeah, sort of east of Lake County, Clear Lake, and I think his company is called Stick in the Mud. <laughs> there, I, my house, and many others. I really have assembled the design from other people who have done some tremendous work in the field. I, I should give a shout out to CASBA, uh, mm -hmm. the California Association of Straw Bale Builders. And, and they have a lot of resources and links that people can look at to get inspired or find people in their area who might do this kind of work. And they have a book that they've put out uh, just a couple years ago on straw bale building one of the definitive works on that subject. So I highly recommend looking at that book if you're interested in pursuing a straw bale building. And, and there's a lot of similar techniques that would be in that uh, similar to straw bale. There's a, a technique called clay wattle, light straw clay. And these all borrow from older traditions, some from Europe, some from um, Africa, Korea, we really have the benefit, I feel like, of accessing building traditions from all around the world. This era has so much capacity to to uh, 
assemble different techniques that have been very successful from all around the world. And I, I encourage people to look beyond what is offered in conventional construction as there's a lot of wonderful ways to do it. And the industry standard is not the only way. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I've learned a lot and I have also learned a lot just getting ready for this interview. And I hope to live in a straw bale, cob house, pole structure one of these days. Hope to have you back as well. Thanks, Colin. That sounds great. I would love to help you and others find a way to do that. It seems like with especially with catastrophic fires, the old paradigm is crumbling and it's time to really look to systems that have proven themselves to work well. Definitely. Well, take care, Colin. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Chad. And that was Colin Gillespie of PoleCraftSolutions.com, a natural building firm based in Laytonville, California. And here's a little piece of a Ben Harper song recommended by Colin, Diamonds on the Inside. And after that, we'll be back with Vince Taylor to wrap up the show. All right, you have been listening to the Mendocino Trail Stewards Radio Hour. And before we wrap it up, we've got a short conversation with Vince Taylor of the original campaign to restore Jackson State Forest. Vince, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a happy birthday. I got to go out and walk around the Jackson Forest, which is always very nourishing for me. So I'm, I'm renewed, refreshed, and redetermined. All right, on. We appreciate you participating and you being here to talk to us. Can you tell us a little bit about the Mendocino Woodlands and the history of this iconic place? Well, yeah, what's really interesting about the Woodlands is now part of uh, Jackson Demonstration State Forest, and they acquired it from the federal government at the same time that they bought all of the old Casper Lumber Company holdings, which were about 48,000 acres, and the Mendocino Woodlands uh, plan was 5,000 and some odd acres. So it's a significant uh, piece of property. What's uh, fascinating and also disturbing is that the Woodlands were, was one of 58 recreational demonstration areas that the federal government constructed during the New Deal days. The Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, people worked on these, and they were recreation developments that were intended to provide low-cost recreation in a group camp setting for poor people in the cities who wouldn't have enough money to get out into the country otherwise. This was a very uh, evolved concept and very tightly managed by people in, in Washington who were preservationists, recreationists, and social planners, they built it and they always intended these to go to the departments of, of parks and recreation in the states they were located in. But something went amiss. Um, instead of ending up in parks and recreation in the 1940s, somehow the forestry forces in California managed to get the federal government to say that it was okay that they take this into Jackson Forest and use it for logging. 
And what's amazing about this is it's completely contrary to the terms of the Act of Congress that authorized the, the transfer of these lands from the federal government to the state. Mm -hmm. the, I'm going to pick out the actual language so I can read it to you exactly as it was written, because it's so amazing to me. The Act of Congress said specifically that this language will be transferred to the states to be used in perpetuity solely for public park, recreational, and conservation purposes. Nothing could be much clearer than to say that they wanted it to be used as a recreation and a park. And indeed, the details of the plans for this park said that they were going to even restore areas that had been converted over to non-forest. They were going to reforest those. And that everything, the whole idea was to allow people to achieve recreation in a unspoiled natural environment. So it's a true perversion of the intent of Congress and the intent of the New Deal people that it ended up being managed by, for the Department of Forestry as an industrial logging operation. Fortunately, every time they tried to come and really log right in the area where the campgrounds are, people rose up and said, you can't do this. And so the CDF backed off. Right now, they have three different timber harvest plants scheduled right in next to where the camps are and here in clear violation of the law myself. Yeah. I'd like to see reparations made, transfer over to parks, and then reparations made to the parks department from all the timber they cut and all the revenue that they gained. We are just about out of time, but next month on the Trail Sturge Radio Hour, we are going to have a full hour-long conversation with Vince Taylor and Bill Lemos, who spent his childhood swimming out at Boyles, and we will discuss the 1976 Act of the California Legislature, which split up the woodlands, the 5,000 acres, gave 700 acres to state parks, and the rest was returned back to CDF, which is now known as CAL FIRE. And we'll hear much more about Vince's plans and hopes for this amazing place. Thanks, Vince. You're entirely welcome. Thanks for having me on. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. To